So I'm going to go ahead and read it, read the passage, and uh, then we'll jump right in. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. So you can turn there if you want to. And this is the New American Standard Version, if you're following along. <clears throat> so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, until it was all leavened. Lord, we ask for your blessing now, for your Holy Spirit to be ministering and teaching and instructing and convicting and motivating your people to be like Christ and to see what you're doing in the world and to rejoice that we have a sovereign God who's working all things after his will. So do these things today, Father, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What I would like to do this morning as we get started in this study is I want to take you back and I want to show you the emphasis of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Luke all the way up from chapter 1 to chapter 13 so that you'll understand when we get to chapter 13 verse 18 and Jesus says, what's the kingdom of God like? You'll have a background for that statement, for that question. Okay. In chapter 1 of Luke, verse 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel came to Mary when she was about to be pregnant. And this is what he said to her. He, that is speaking about her unborn son, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now here, this angel tells Mary about her son, and he says about the son, he's going to have the throne of his father David. Now, and then he goes on to say, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What do we call someone who has a throne and reigns? What is that person? King. The king. Exactly. So the angel inadvertently is saying, you're going to have a king born to you. This one that's about to be born is going to be a king. And then at the end of the verse, it says, and his kingdom will last forever. So the one that you are going to bear is going to be a king, and he's going to have a kingdom. Now, it's interesting, throughout the Gospel of Luke, when you follow this theme, and all you have to do is get out some software or get a concordance and look up the phrase kingdom or kingdom of God throughout the Gospel of Luke, or Kingdom of Heaven. And you'll start to see the emphasis that's there. This is what Jesus primarily preached about, the Kingdom of God. This is what he sent out his disciples to preach about. Jesus was always talking about the Kingdom. Let me just show you that. Luke 4.43 But Jesus said to them, I must preach the Kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he sums up the reason why he was sent. Why? Well, in one respect, Jesus was sent for this purpose, to preach the kingdom of God to all the cities 
of Galilee, all the cities in Palestine. In Luke 8, 1, it says, Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching, what do you think it was? The kingdom of God. That's what he's preaching. In Luke 9, 11, it says, But the crowds were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So if you were to summarize the theme of Jesus' preaching and Jesus' teaching, it was the kingdom. It was all about the kingdom. And then, let's notice what his disciples were told to preach about. Luke 9, 2. And he sent them out, this is the twelve, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So they're basically to do two things. Heal the sick and preach about the kingdom of God. And of course, along the way, they cast out demons. So there's these three things they were doing. Or Luke 9.60. Here he's speaking to a would-be disciple. This would-be disciple said, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but first let me go back home and bury my father. And Jesus said, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere, what? The kingdom of God. Or Luke 10.9, this is where Jesus is sending out the 70. In Luke chapter 9, he sends out the 12. The very next chapter, he sends out 70 of his disciples. And this is what he says there. Heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So, what are they supposed to say? The kingdom of God is near. It's, it's here. You can get into this kingdom. It's not too late for you. Repent and believe the gospel, and enter the kingdom. So, this is the theme of Jesus' preaching. This is the theme of the disciples' preaching. And then I want to show you how very valuable Jesus said the kingdom was. He basically says there's nothing more important than for you to see the kingdom and enter the kingdom for yourself. In Luke 6.20, Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Don't worry about the fact that you're poor. You're blessed, even if you are poor, if you have entered into the kingdom of God. Or Luke 7, 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, did you catch the importance of that statement? There has never been a person, a man, born of women, any greater than John, but now that there's this kingdom, anybody who's in the kingdom is greater than he is. Do you see how great it is to be in the kingdom? You're greater than John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Or Luke 8.10, Jesus said to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What a blessing it was for someone to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Incredible blessing. Or Luke 9, 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now that is open to a number of different interpretations, that statement. It's not an easy verse to interpret, but I think... It's interesting just to see Jesus' emphasis and the value he places on being in the kingdom. 
Some of you won't even die until you see the kingdom of God. Or Luke 9.62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, do you want to know how valuable it is to be in the kingdom? You're not even fit to be in that kingdom if you're going to look back after you've started to plow. To be in the kingdom is so valuable, such a blessed thing, that anybody who's in that kingdom needs to just keep his eyes forward. Luke 10, 11, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So again, he's telling people that rejected his message, we wipe off our feet and protest against you, but I want you to know something, you had the opportunity to go into the kingdom. It's come near to you, and you have rejected it. In other words, what a weighty, sense of woe and responsibility he's putting on those rejectors of the gospel. Or Luke 11.2 When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So the, very, the second thing he tells them to pray about, first of all, hallowed be God's name, lifted up as holy and glorious. Secondly, Lord, let your kingdom come. Because it's such a valuable thing for the kingdom of God to spread and expand in the world. And then in Luke 12, 31, Jesus said, But seek first God's kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He summarizes the whole Christian life into one thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's how important and valuable it is. And then Luke 12, 32, Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So you start to see Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom and the value he places on the kingdom. Don't be afraid of these things, little flock. Why? Because God has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. If he's going to give you the kingdom, who cares about anything else? That's how valuable it is that you're in the kingdom. So Jesus is the king, and he has this valuable kingdom, and all he seems to talk about is the kingdom. Wherever he goes, from one city and village to another, he's preaching the kingdom, and I imagine that his disciples must have been really confused. Wouldn't you? They're expecting this kingdom. But what is in the back of the mind of the disciples when they thought about the kingdom? They're thinking about pomp and glory and military power and sovereignty and fanfare they're thinking about a big show, of this glorious show of lights, you know, and, and this sovereign power. And they look at Jesus, and they look at what's happening, and they scratch their heads. They're thinking, you know, where's the palace, Lord? Where's your throne? If you're a king, and you're bringing in this kingdom, where are the armies? Where's the money? <laughs> Where are all the crowds of kingdom citizens? Where are the chariots? Where are the weapons? Where is it? And it wasn't anywhere. Jesus had no money. He had no possessions. He had no facilities. He had no armies. He didn't have anything that they were expecting that he would have when he brought in the kingdom. So they were just confused. And to top it all off, Jesus didn't even act like a king. He didn't live in a palace. 
He didn't sit on a throne. He didn't wear a crown. He was, you know, this peasant walking around preaching the kingdom. He had no place. He never owned a home. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He owned the clothes on his back, and that was about it. Remember when he died? The soldiers cast lots for his garments. That's all he had. He didn't look like a king. And it didn't look like he had a kingdom. I mean, think about the people that were following him. You've got the twelve. Well, what kind of background do they come from? Fishermen? Some tax collectors? He's got some women? Some, some unsavory people with an unsavory past? And these people are following Jesus, this ragtag bunch of disciples following him. And we learn in another place that he had 70 followers. So it wasn't just 12. He had 70 that he would send out. Later on in Acts chapter 1, when he was about to ascend to heaven, we find there's 120 disciples meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem. So we go from 12 to 70 to 120. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he appeared to over 500 disciples at one time. So if you put all of these disciples together, maybe... There's somewhere between 500 and 1,000 disciples that he left behind when he ascended to heaven. That's not a huge kingdom. The Jews expected that when the kingdom came and the Messiah appeared, that all of Israel would follow this Messiah because he's the one they've been waiting for, right? Prophecy after prophecy has been given and they're waiting for him to appear. And that didn't happen. They had a few hundred people that recognized Jesus and were willing to follow Jesus as their Messiah. And not only that, Jesus has enemies. Instead of winning over the whole nation, he's got a whole bunch of enemies. And these enemies are the influential and the powerful people of Israel, aren't they? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief elders among the people. All the people with power and clout are standing against him. He's made it clear that he believes their religious observances are hypocritical. And so they're angry. They feel they've got to do something to get rid of him. He's starting to draw the common people after him, and they can't have that. And there's this power struggle and this envy going on. And so they're plotting now to kill him. So Jesus is always talking about the kingdom. He sends other people out to preach about the kingdom. They can't figure out where it's at doesn't look like there is a kingdom anywhere. And they had forsaken everything to follow Jesus, hadn't they? These fishermen had left their boats and their nets. They'd left their families. Peter left his wife, his mother-in-law. If he had children, he left them. And they're living with Jesus, traveling around, following him, seeking to do his will. So they'd forsaken everything. And at first, there were some large crowds. But the longer and longer Jesus ministers, the crowds start to dispel. Because he would say some pretty radical thing to these crowds. When we get to Luke chapter 14, it's going to talk about the huge crowds that are following Jesus. And he turns around and he says to them, Unless you hate your father and mother, wife, husband, brother, sister, child, unless you hate all these people and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. He says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Unless you give away all your possessions, 
You can't be my disciple. So he deliberately thins out the crowd. Instead of just accepting everybody, he says, no, no, I'm looking for a certain quality of follower, a certain kind of person. This is a person who's going to make me first in their life, and there'll be no rival. They're going to follow me as the king and the head of their life. So yes, initially there were these huge crowds, but they were thinned out over time, and by the time he got to the last week of his life, this crowd was clamoring for his death, weren't they? Crucify him! Crucify him! So he didn't have a huge kingdom following him. In fact, in John 18, 33, do you remember there when Pilate brings Jesus before him? And Pilate says in Luke 18, 33, um, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? See, it wasn't even clear to Pilate whether Jesus was a king. Didn't look like a king to Pilate. He was just as confused as the disciples. He had heard people say that Jesus was a king, and so he's asking him, are you? Are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, well, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation. And the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king. Yes, I have a kingdom. But it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this particular world. Do you remember the sign they put on his cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was his crime. They would nail over a crucified man's head the crime for which he was being executed. His crime? He's a king. At least he said he was. So where is the kingdom? Sure doesn't look like a king. He doesn't have any of the earthly trappings and glory and splendor of a king. So the disciples would have been very confused by all of this. And especially when he's actually crucified. All their hopes are dashed, right? They had put everything into him. They left everything and forsook everything and followed Jesus and were expecting this kingdom. And you remember James and John? They once had their, their mother approach Jesus and say something like, so when you come into your kingdom, would you let my sons sit on your right hand and on your left? They're expecting this earthly, powerful, military, sovereign kingdom. And then Jesus dies, and it never materializes. Their hopes are dashed. They run, and they flee from all the authorities. And they look at Jesus, and they see someone who's powerless, who's weak, who's despised, who's poor, and who's now dead. And I believe that's why Jesus takes the time in Luke chapter 13 to give them these two parables. Because he wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to encourage them about this kingdom. Now it takes some time for the parable to sink in. I don't think they really got it until after the resurrection. But Jesus is preparing them. Because he knows how difficult it's going to be to see all of their hopes dashed. The kingdom never materialized to them. The king executed. This is to help their faith. It's to encourage their faith. Now in this section Jesus gives them two parables. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And these parables are very closely related. They teach the, the same basic idea from two different vantage points. In the first parable, 
the parable of the mustard seed, we see the external expansion of the kingdom. So this little tiny seed, this mustard seed, grows up into a plant, and it keeps growing, keeps growing into something that looks like a tree, until the birds of the air come and make nests in that tree. This is something they could see with the visible eye. They could see this plant growing and expanding and, and uh, taking this powerful tree-like stance. The external expansion of the kingdom. The second one, the parable of the leaven, is to teach them about the internal influence of the kingdom. Because here you have a story of a woman who took some leaven, hid it in three pecks of flour, and then that leaven does its work by bubbling and fermenting and expanding and permeating until that flour, that dough, rises higher and higher so that when it's baked it doesn't turn into a cracker, it turns into fluffy bread. So there you have the influence of the kingdom. How when the kingdom comes into the world, it, it spreads, it expands, it changes the character of the world that it's in. It transforms it by the power of the gospel. So you've got the external expansion of the kingdom in the mustard seed. You've got the internal influence of the kingdom in the leaven. So let's look at those two closer. First of all, the external expansion of the kingdom. Now, there are two ways that people interpret these parables. Let me share with you the way that I, I don't agree with this particular interpretation, but it is an interpretation that many scholars hold. They look at these parables negatively, and you may have heard this interpretation. They say that the mustard seed, because it grows so big, that it's unnatural, and it's even grotesque in how big it is. It, a mustard seed should grow into a garden plant, but never into a tree. And they also look at those birds, and they say, well, the birds represent Satan, because the birds represent Satan in the parable of the sower. And so they bring out that interpretation, and they say that the birds represent Satan here. And they say that this parable teaches that the church is going to grow unnaturally and grotesquely large by having lots of unbelievers enter into it and that Satan is going to be introduced into the kingdom and he's going to have his way in this unnatural church, this ungodly church. And then they look at the second one and you can probably guess how they interpret that. What's leaven usually represent in the Bible? Sin or evil of some sort. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there, there are many examples in the Bible where leaven does have a symbolic meaning, and it's usually negative, sinful. And so they say the woman is false teachers. They have stealthily hid or injected into the church this false teaching, which is leaven. And this leaven is permeating the, the visible kingdom. And that's why we have such a watered-down, weak, powerless church in the world today. It's because uh, Satan has done his work. He's sent false teachers into the church, and that's what's happened. So that's one way that people interpret these parables. Uh, I, I don't accept those interpretations, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Leaven does not always have a negative connotation in the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament and take a look at Leviticus 7.13 and Leviticus 
23, 15 to 18, there are certain sacrifices where God specifically says he wants them to add leavened bread to their animal sacrifices and that thing was pleasing and holy to the Lord. Okay? Now if leaven always means something that's evil, it's hard for me to understand why God would specifically say, add leaven to this sacrifice which is going to be pleasing unto me. Also, parables are intended to basically teach one thing. And we get into trouble when we start to assign different meanings to every different detail of the parable. For example, if we say that the birds have a meaning, and the woman has a meaning, and the leaven has a meaning, and you have all these symbols going on, then you come up with some kind of more elaborate interpretation. But if you say, okay, these parables were intended to teach one basic truth, what would that truth be? What would be the natural interpretation that would be easy for these first listeners to get and to understand? Okay? Basically, the kingdom is going to start off small, and it's going to grow big, and it's going to have a powerful influence in the world. Right? To me, that's real simple, real basic, real natural way to interpret it. But if I start to say, okay, um, the birds mean Satan, the leaven means sin, what does the woman mean? What about the flower? What, what symbolic meaning does a flower have? What about the fact that there's three of them? What symbolic meaning does the number three have? And you start looking for a, a meaning in every detail of the parable, you get off track. People have done that with the parable of the Good Samaritan. They say, you know, Jerusalem is the church, and they have, they have a meaning for everybody. The Good Samaritan means something, the three, the, the people that pass by on the other side, they have a meaning, and, and it gets very, very fanciful. And so what they're doing is looking under the surface for a hidden meaning to these parables. Folks, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> I think Jesus is trying to actually communicate something rather than hide the truth. And it looks to me like the truth he's communicating is very clear. What's the kingdom like? It's like a little tiny seed that's going to grow really big. It's like this leaven that when you put into the, some dough, it causes the whole lump of dough to rise. It permeates and expands throughout the whole lump. That's what the kingdom is like. Now, Luke doesn't give us this detail, but if you were to look in Matthew and Mark, they tell us that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the world. He was saying that the mustard seed is the smallest seed that a farmer in Israel would cast into his garden the smallest of the garden seeds. And that was true. Do you know how big a mustard seed is? Anybody? You do? You're right. So I, I took a look, I, I googled it to find out how big a mustard seed was. It's one milligram in diameter. Do you know how big that is? Take three grains of salt, stick them together. That's a mustard seed. It's pretty tiny. I mean, if it's on your thumb, you'd barely see it tiny, tiny seed that grows into the biggest of all the garden plants. That's the point. It can grow 8 to 12 feet high, so about twice the size or twice the height of a man, up to 15 feet wide. So you're talking about a large plant that you'd have stuck out in your garden. And it has, is actually big enough for birds to come and make their nests. So, no visible trappings of the kingdom. 
it's going to start off very small. It's going to be obscure and quiet and almost invisible. When you take that tiny little seed and put it under the ground, it is invisible, isn't it? You can't see a thing. And for a period of time, you don't know anything's going on. That's what was happening when the disciples were trying to find the kingdom. That seed had been planted, but they couldn't see anything. Where is it? Where is the kingdom? <laughs> we don't see anything. It's under the ground. And soon, it's going to shoot up on the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people are converted. A uh, few months, or I, I don't know how long it was after that, but two chapters later in Acts, 5,000 are converted. So there's, there's this rapid growth of the kingdom, but when the 12 disciples are looking for it, they can't find it. It's invisible to them, because it's obscure. Do you remember in Luke chapter 17? I, I'll just show you this to you. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, it says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or look, there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. See, the Pharisees were, were saying, when's the kingdom of God going to come? They didn't know it had arrived. Jesus had been announcing, it's already here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Pharisees said, uh... They were questioning Jesus as to when the kingdom of God was going to come. And Jesus has to tell them, well, you're looking for it in all the wrong places. You're looking for great military armies and battering rams and swords and spears and bows and arrows and catapults. You're looking for these great steeds and horses and chariots. You're looking in all the wrong places. You're looking for these signs to be observed. Don't look for signs to be observed. He says... You can't say, look, here it is or there it is, because you're not going to see it with a visible eye. You're going to see it with the eye of faith. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Some people have this interpretation that it means the kingdom of God is inside of every person on the planet. It's in everybody's, it's within you. That's one translation. The kingdom of God is within all of you. In other words, all of you are saved. Because the kingdom of God is inside of you. It's kind of a crazy interpretation. I don't think that's what that means. I think it means the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, who was in the midst of them right then? Jesus. Jesus is the king. And that's why the kingdom of God was in their midst. Because the king was there. And he was bringing the kingdom to this world. So, don't look for these outward signs of glory and pomp. You'll never find the kingdom that way. You'll find it when you recognize that the king is among you. And anyone who follows the king is in the kingdom. And you know that's exactly what has happened. The kingdom did start as this tiny little speck, this little seed that was put under the ground, and it shot up. And today it has become the biggest plant. It's the biggest religion in the world today started off as a bunch of despised, ragtag followers of Jesus, and now there's 2.2 billion, not million, billion <laughs> adherents to the Christian faith in the world. That's about one-third of the world's population. Now, I'm not saying that we have 2.2 billion people who are saved. 
I'm saying we have 2.2 billion people who in some way associate themselves with Christianity. They might be in a cult, they might be in a religious system where they're not even believers, but they have identified themselves with Christianity. Do you know what the next largest religion in the world is besides Christianity? Islam. 1.6 billion adherents. So you've got 2.2 billion with Christianity, 1.6 billion with Islam. I, I checked this last week and found out that, can you guess how many people are, are being converted to Christianity every single day in the world? If you counted them all up. It's pretty amazing. 178,000 every day. That's two people a second. All across the world are embracing the Christian faith in one form or fashion. We have 16,000 Muslims being converted to Christianity every day across the world. Pretty cool. And that equals 6 million Muslims being converted to Christianity every year throughout the world. And we've seen revivals amongst Muslims like we've never seen before in the last generation, which is very encouraging. I know I'm not saying that every one of them has been born again, but they in some way have embraced Christ and the Christian faith. So it's true. Jesus' prophecy has come true. Christianity is this mustard seed which has become just like a tree. And that's why when we go to the book of Revelation, we're going to see how it all winds up in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven. This is Revelation 11:15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the end. That's how it all winds up. Now, back in Luke 13, he talks about these birds. These birds that nest in the branches. The interesting thing about these birds is that they don't share the life of the tree, do they? They're not one of the branches on the tree. They don't share the root of the tree. They're an alien form that is benefiting from the tree, but doesn't receive life from the tree. And so for that reason, I think Jesus probably has in mind uh, the unbelieving peoples of the world that find benefit from Christianity. And don't you know there are millions of people in America who benefit simply by the fact that there are Christians that live in this country? Who is it that is first to build the hospitals and the universities and the orphanages and the inner city missions that house the homeless? It's, it's almost always the Christians that do that. And so people at large, society at large, is like these birds that benefit. They have these nests where they can lay their young. They have a place where they can find security and protection and shelter. They find blessing from being in a nation that has strong Christian roots. Now, I'm not saying Christianity, I mean, the United States is a Christian nation today. Far, I mean, we are going about as fast as you can imagine away from being any kind of a Christian nation. But we do have strong Christian roots here in the United States. And that counts for something. We have this influence that has pervaded our land, although it is fading fast. And we desperately need a revival. So here we have the external expansion of the kingdom illustrated by this mustard plant growing very large from very small beginnings. The second parable, the parable of the leaven, shows us not the external 
but the internal. Because we're, we're told about a woman, and Jesus' mom, I'm sure, Mary, would have made bread in the home, and Jesus had watched her, and so he uses the very simple, homely illustrations. I love that about Jesus. You never find him saying the Greek word or the Hebrew word for this is such and such. He just says, you know, the kingdom is like when my mom we used to make bread for us at home. And he would tell this simple story, and it, it's so powerful, isn't it, when he's done. Let, let's read it again. Verse 20, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, three pecks of flour is about 50 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. That'll make bread for about 100 people. And he's saying you just have to take a little bit of leaven and inject that leaven into these three lumps of dough, and it's going to rise and expand and ferment until that those three different lumps of dough have all risen to the point where you can bake them and they, they don't turn out to be these hard crackers like unleavened bread is. They turn out to be fluffy loaves of bread that are delicious to eat. We all enjoy good homemade bread, don't we? The leaven actually changes the character of that dough. But notice he says that this woman hid the leaven in the three pecks. So the leaven's inside. You can't see it from the outside. It's doing its work, but you can't see it doing its work. The only thing you can see is the results of what it's doing on the inside. You can see it slowly get taller and fatter and rounder. <laughs> you can see that, but you can't see what it's doing on the inside of that lump of dough. And that's what the kingdom is doing in the world today. Most people, when they, they have no idea there's even a kingdom here. You're eating your Burger King Whopper on one table, and they're sitting at the table next to you eating their cheeseburger, and they look over at you, and they have no idea that there's a citizen of the kingdom right next to them. They don't have eyes to see it. They don't know that you are an heir of the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, that God lives in you, that you possess eternal life. They have no clue that that's happening. Over in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this. He says in Romans 8, 19, The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation. Why does the creation wait eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God? Because there's a curse on creation. And creation is subject to, like the living plants and organisms around us, they're subject to diseases and decay, they die. Even those trees that live 2,000 years eventually die. Every living thing is subject to decay, they're, it's all going down, entropy. The universe is winding down, not growing up, right? And so all of creation waits eagerly for the day when they won't be subject to this curse and death and decay any longer, when Christ comes back and all of his sons are revealed, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and the curse is going to be lifted and there's not going to be any more disease, death, and decay. It's going to be glory at that time. So the creation's waiting eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed, which means right now they're not. The world doesn't know who we are. They can't see the kingdom. It's like 
were hid inside the flower. And they look at that lump of dough and don't see anything but a lump of dough. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. But what is going on? The transformation of that dough is happening. The very character of that, that flour mix is being changed into something that produces bread rather than crackers. And believers in the world are being used as agents of transformation. Lives are being changed. Lives are being touched because you are in the world. Because you are interacting with somebody else. You see, through your righteousness and your witness and your service and your Christian life that's being lived out before other people, God is using that like leaven to have this influence in the world to bring people to Christ and to change their lives forever. Isn't that cool? That God could use us to actually change this wicked world and to draw out a people for God's name and to see their lives be transformed? Just like that dough being transformed? I love that idea. Sometimes we, uh, we think, you know, if we just had a Christian president, everything would be okay. Then we'd see this world change. Or if we just had our secular universities have a Christian president who's on top, you know, and he calls the shots, then our secular institutions would change and we'd, we'd reclaim this nation for God. Or if we just had the Supreme Court justices, all believers, man, we'd turn this nation around. As though that's what we need. You know, I'm not against any of that, but I don't think that's what we need in order to see transformation what we need is for every Christian in this nation to live out their Christianity they need to be leavened they they need to accurately represent Christ wherever they are out in public when they're around lost people and non-Christians they need to show a life of integrity and honesty and righteousness they need to speak what Jesus would speak if he were here in our place. They need to serve others the way Jesus would serve others. You see, if we are actually the representation of Christ to other people, that's going to have this leavening influence in the world. A transforming influence in the world. That's what the United States needs. We need to stand up and we need to start living for Jesus Christ the way He wants us to. And not be ashamed to say what Christ would say if he was here in person. But we are. And that's why we need to ask God to deliver us from uh, being man-pleasing instead of God-pleasing. So I have, I have two things I want us to focus on as we start to wind down this message. Two, two points of application for you to think of. Now you may think of more than this, but these are the ones that I feel the Lord gave me this week. Number one. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. The disciples easily could have despised the day of small beginnings because they just couldn't see anything happening. Now that all changed later on when 3,000 are saved and then 5,000 are saved. And then the Roman empires, emperors tried to stamp out Christianity but it just kept growing in spite of all the people they killed. It just kept spreading and growing. They saw that little seed turn into a mustard plant. We need to do the same thing. 
we need to decide we're not going to despise the day of small beginnings. And the way I applied this, number one, is to the life of our church. Folks, we're weak, we're small, <laughs> we're like one tiny little bit of one leaf on that mustard plant. We just got a little, little corner of one leaf, right? That's all we are. We don't have lots of strength, lots of power, lots of money, lots of people. We don't have any of those things. Don't despise that. Don't despise the fact that that's the way things are. You know, a snowball, when you first get that thing rolling, it's pretty small. But just wait a little while. It's going to turn into a big, pounding snowball eventually as it rolls down that hill. We're just making a snowball right now. And we're letting that snowball loose right about now. Just watch. And especially those of you who are involved in making the snowball. <laughs> You're going to have the joy of seeing God do some powerful things. And I want to encourage you that aren't involved to become involved. I want you to have the joy of seeing what God can do through your life and your witness. Some of us have been working really hard out in the harvest the last three months or so being diligent. Sometimes we don't feel like going. Sometimes we are afraid of going. We're going into one apartment complex right now that's pretty rough. And it can be a little scary going in there. Windows are broken. They've had shootings in there. Uh, it's not the safest place to be. But there are lots and lots of people in there who are lost and they're more open to hearing the gospel than if we go around this neighborhood. Much more open. And there are people that we've already discovered the last few weeks that are wanting us to come back because they want to hear more of the truth. So I just want to encourage you, don't despise the fact that things are small. Be hopeful for the future. I want you to see the vision for the future. Think about Jimmy practicing his violin in his bedroom. His mom makes him take lessons. So he's in there doing twinkle, twinkle, little star on his violin. And he looks out the window and what does he see? All of his buddies are playing baseball. He goes, Mom, can I stop this? I want to go play baseball. No, you've got to put in your 30 minutes per day. So twinkle, twinkle, little star. He goes on his violin. Let's say an angel appears to Jimmy. And he takes him in this vision 20 years into the future. And he shows him up on stage at Carnegie Hall playing his violin to the most exquisite, beautiful music in the world in front of... a. a an audience of thousands upon thousands of people. And he sees that, and it's him. He's the one up there in Carnegie Hall playing his violin. Now he's brought back 20 years into the present. Do you think that's going to change anything about his practice sessions? I think so. He's got a vision now. He knows what it's going to be if he just keeps at it. He can see the big picture. And we need to keep the big picture in front of us. God has called us according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to make disciples that will make disciples. I mean, boil down God's call on our lives, individually and as a church, that's what He's got us to do. We're supposed to make disciples who make other disciples. Thank God He's given us a process now that we've been starting to follow for about the last three months to put that into practice. And if we'll keep at it, 20 years down the road, we're going to see something. But if you give up, if you start to fear man, if you lose heart and throw in the towel, and you say, I don't want to do this anymore, it's never going to happen. 
But if we keep at it and we're diligent, week after week after week, we're going to see the Lord saving people. We're going to see those people start to reach their friends. And eventually we're going to see churches planting churches, which is, which is really when we start to see movement happening. So I just want to encourage you, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And those of you who are not involved in the harvest, get involved. I know it's not easy. I know it's fearful. I know it demands extra time. But hey, we're Christians. Jesus is the master. This is what he's called us to do. Secondly, be an accurate representative of Jesus Christ. We are his hands and his feet in the world. You've heard that saying that you may be the only Bible that lost people will ever read. Your life, your witness, what you say, what you do, may be the only true witness for Christ that somebody else ever sees or hears. So we need to seek to be accurate representatives of Jesus Christ. We're told that we are ambassadors for Christ. What's that? It's just an official representative. And so... We need to represent Jesus wherever we are, especially when we're out in public, when we're at Starbucks, when we are out to eat somewhere and we're talking with the waitress or the waiter or the person who takes our money at the end, uh, or we're talking to the person in the table next to us. You rub shoulders with lost people at the grocery store and you start up a conversation. My encouragement to you is, don't be ashamed, don't be embarrassed to speak what Jesus would speak if he were in your place at that moment. So that includes things like abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, which is a real hot button right now. What would Jesus say if he was in our position? That includes the sinfulness and depravity of man. When it's not popular to talk about that, it's much more popular to talk about how everybody's got this uh, what, this grain of goodness, this spark of goodness within the soul of every person? Well, the Bible says there's no one good, no, not one. This includes the good news of the gospel, not to be ashamed or embarrassed by that, but if Jesus were in your place, what would he say? Well, you're his representative. You're his ambassador. What you're supposed to do is say what he would say, do what he would do. So we need to be asking ourselves, okay, if I'm going to be going out into public, Lord, help me to portray you to other people. I want my life, I want my example, I want my words to testify to Christ. Don't despise the day of small beginnings and be an accurate representative of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things I want us to take away and pray about. So Lord, we do just ask that you would enable us to, to take heart from these two parables of Jesus. Your kingdom is going to grow. It has grown, Lord. It's grown phenomenally. And your kingdom is going to have an influence in the world, all throughout the world, in all these various cultures where it's planted. It's going to have this transforming influence. So, Lord, would you encourage us that we get to have a part to play in the growth and expansion and influence of your kingdom in the world. Encourage us and help us to live that out, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.